Number six, that's where we left off last time, verse number six. We'll pick up there and then we'll go forward as much as we can tonight. If you remember, as we were looking at uh, this passage and studying <coughs> from it, when we were looking at verse number six, John wrote and said, And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Now, we're not going to go back and talk about everything that we did um, last week in verse number 6. We do know that he is writing to the lady, Syria, and he is telling her, reminding her about what love is. And the love that he mentions that he wants to emphasize there is that we walk in the commandments. Uh, we talked about last time uh, how that... Uh, they were to walk in truth, uh, and he didn't say the truth, even though it's in some of our English translations, but we know it's the truth, we know it's the Word of God, because in the next verse he talks about doing the commandments of God. And the same is true here. He talks about walking in the commandments, uh, and he says this is the commandment that we've heard from the beginning that we should walk in. He's talking about that commandment to love one another. And so we dealt with all of that, uh, to, to, to also to love God, and so uh, we dealt with that last time. But I want to I look at two additional verses that, that, we, uh, uh, that, that fit with this passage, and I want us to, to pay some close attention to them. Let's go to the book of Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 40. Matthew chapter 26, verses or 22 verses 36 through 40. And whoever gets to that passage, you know, the, you know the drill. We'll let you go ahead and start reading that out loud for us. Matthew th uh, 22 verses 36 uh, through about verse number 40. Actually, you can stop in 39 be fine. Okay, so we've got those commandments. We've heard that passage basically all of our life. Jesus was asked, what is, the, what is the greatest commandment? Here it is. He says we're to love the Lord our God. And this is what John is telling us to do. He says the second is likened to it, right? And I had Tommy to stop there in verse number 39 because I wanted to point those two out. And then in verse number 40, how does he... Sum it up. How does he bring it to a, uh, uh, to a close, if you will? When he talks about loving God and loving one another, he, he sums it up by saying what? These are the things, uh, he says, on these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. Everything is built around loving God and loving our fellow man. And it's not just an emotion that we have toward God. Because John is telling us here that to love God, as well as in 1 John chapter 5, uh, where we looked at verse number 3, we know that to love God is to do what he says. And John, would have, John wrote about that earlier in the book of John. And so to love one another, uh, to love God and to love one another, that is the foundation, that is the basis of everything that, that, that we do. 
And it was the the foundation and the basis of the Old Testament law. Because Jesus said, on this hang what? The law, Old Testament, Mosaic law, and the prophets. And so we have a command like them. But I, but I want you to look at another passage, and this is uh, in the book of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 28, because Luke records this setting, and, and he gives us a little bit more information, a little bit different information that is very important for us, and we don't want to overlook what, what he has to say. Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 28. Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and said to him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? All right, stop right there for a second. What was the lawyer's question? What, what do I need to do in order to have eternal life? Now, are there similar questions to that found in the New Testament? What about in the book of Acts, chapter 16? Basically, What must I do to be saved? Is that not what this man is asking Jesus? Uh, To have eternal life and to be saved, I would say they're pretty well equal, aren't they? And so he's asking, what do I need to do as, and remember he's asking as a Jew, what do I need to do to be saved? Well, what is the answer that Jesus gives him? Uh, Keep reading. Go ahead. He said to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? All right, what? I keep interrupting Randall, but how did Jesus answer? What did he do? He he answered him by asking two questions there, didn't he? he? He answers the man by asking two questions. What were the two questions? What's written in the law? Number one. And what? What's your reading or understanding? Yeah, what's your understanding of it? How do you read it? Okay? He's not saying, are you smart enough to read it? He's saying, what's your understanding of it? Okay? And so go on. Verse 27. So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. All right, stop right there. Who said that? Who made that statement according to Luke? The lawyer did. Because Jesus asked him, what's written in the law, and do you understand it? And so this man says, here's what the law says. Love God, love your fellow man. Okay? But look at verse number 28. And he said to him, you have answered rightly, do this, and you will live. You have answered correctly. You've answered rightly. If you do that, you will live. Well, is that not what John is telling us in this passage as well? To remember that commandment. Remember he's talked about loving our neighbor, um, loving others, loving one another. He's talked about loving God. Is that what we have to do? To love God and love our fellow man. Shake it this way. Yes, that's what we need to do to be saved. To love God and love our fellow man. But what does it take to love God? 
and to love our fellow man. Walk, verse 6, in the commandments. Do what God said. Okay? And so if somebody pointed out and said, well, the Bible says all we've got to do to be saved is love God and love our fellow man, you should say, yes, I agree with you. But what does it mean? And then you talk about what John says. Okay? John says we, in order to love him, we walk in his commandments. That's the way that we accomplish our love for God. And so we need to remember that. Okay? That's verse number 6. Let's go in verse number 7. He says, verse 7, For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Christ, or Jesus Christ, in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Okay? Now again, as we've been doing, let's sort of break this verse down into small bits and pieces and see if we can't grasp it and understand it. What is the first word? First, first word of verse number seven. Four. Okay? Is that an important word or not? Well, all of, all of God's words are important, aren't they? I went to uh, White's Chapel to their gospel meeting Tuesday night. Brother Dan Jenkins was there, and he was preaching. And he, he of course, I had studied this and read it and heard it before, but he brought it out quite powerfully in uh, his lesson. Do you remember what Jesus said about the Old Testament law? What what would not pass away before it was all fulfilled? Two things he said wouldn't pass away. Not one King James Version jot or one tittle. What's a jot and what's a tittle? A jot is the smallest letter in the Hebrew language. If you've ever seen Hebrew writing, it looks like a bunch of jumbled up junk. Okay, it's just a bunch of marks. It, 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 to me, it's almost as bad looking as Chinese. Okay? He said not even the smallest letter will pass away until all of it is fulfilled. That's a jot. What's a tittle? Not just the smallest letter, and this is what was interesting. I'd never heard it put this way. Brother Jenkins says, how many of you have seen a capital F? You remember what a capital F looks like? Capital F, you got a, a line and two lines out this way. He said, change that into a capital E. So what do you do in order to make it a capital E? You just put one little line on it, don't you? That's a tittle. Except, he said, imagine even smaller than that. You change one little... How many of you have ever seen an apostrophe? 
You know what we're talking about when we're talking about an apostrophe? You know that little line, little curve-looking thing up, up uh, top of a letter? He said, even smaller than an apostrophe is a tittle. And it's little marks that they made on the Hebrew letter to change them from one to another. And so, the smallest letter, even to the smallest part of the letter, he said not a single part of that would pass away until all of it was fulfilled. Now, why did I tell you all of that? For this reason. Don't forget to read every word of the Bible. He says, for many deceivers have gone out. That word for is important. Now, let me read you something. And you're probably going to be sitting there shaking your head. But I'll translate it. Okay? Talking about that word for, it literally is a subordinating conjunction. And it indicates relations of syntactic dependence between connected items. Now, syntax, syntactic syntax is, is uh, linguistic elements. It's the way that we say things like words. Okay? And so the long definition is this is a subordinating conjunction and it indicates relations of syntactic, uh, syntactic dependence between connected items. What does that mean? Well, let me just give you the short of it. That just means that what follows is connected to what was just said. What he says in verse number 7 is tied to verse number 6 and what he had said prior to that. He said, I'm not going to leave you hanging. I'm not changing gears here. What, in, what I'm about to say is tied to what I just got through saying. For. For what? Well, the Gospel Advocate Commentary puts it this way. It says it's imperative that you be joined together in love and allow this love to issue in Christian conduct always keeping the commandments which you have been given. To do so, now watch this, is to erect the strongest possible barriers against error. What is John going to write about in verse 7 and following? Error. Notice he talks about the deceivers, the Antichrist, and so forth. He's going to talk about error. How do you combat error? Number one on the list is you as brothers and sisters in Christ must stick together. That's our love for one another. And you as brothers and sisters in Christ must continue your walk no matter what. You're Christian. You're walking the commandments of God that you know. The ones you know to be true, that have been proven to be true. You must continue to walk in them no matter what. 
Now let me just stop off here and, and, and get maybe on just a short little tangent. You know, sometimes we'll, we'll want to interpret one passage in the Bible and, and we think we can take that and make it say one thing because that's the thing that we want to do. For example, suppose we want to teach the doctrine of faith only. How are we going to do it? Well, we're going to point to the passages in the Bible that talk about believing. Case in point, go to the book of Acts chapter 16. When the Philippian jailer asked what he needed to do to be saved, what did Paul tell him? Paul simply told him to do what? Believe and you will be saved. You believe, you and your household, believe on the Lord and you will be saved. And so people will say, oh, there it is. And yet they've read in Ma- and rather uh, Mark chapter 16, verse 16, what? He that believes and is baptized will be saved. Can I take Acts chapter 16, 30 and following where all of this conversation is going on and say that this man, the only thing he has to do is believe? Why? Why can I not say that? Because there's another passage, there are other passages, more than one, that include what? Well, in Mark 16, 16, baptism. Um, Acts 17, 30 and 31, repentance. Uh, Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, confession. Okay? And so I can't, I can't, interpret what is said in Acts 16 to be just faith when there are other passages that clearly say there are other things that are involved, right? Two verses later, they were baptized. That's exactly what I was about to, to say. They were baptized. And what is the next thing that is said after their baptism? They believed. They were baptized having believed. And so all of it is together. You can't take just part. What does he say? Take what you have known, walk in the commandments, and you can't let anything else that comes in Somebody who comes in, he's gonna, we're going to talk about it more, but somebody who comes in and tells you Christ never came in the flesh. You can't take what you know, what you've been taught, and discard that to take this new, untested, well, really it is tested, and found to be false doctrine when it is compared to the rest of what they had been taught. So many people, they want to take part and leave, it, leave the rest off. And that's basically what these folks that, that we'll talk about continuing tonight, they're wanting them to abandon 
But the best defense that they had to, to, to remain true to God was to continue to love one. If you love one another, what are you going to do when someone begins to believe something false? One of the people that you love, one, of, one who's in your circle, if you will, if they're taught something wrong, what are you going to do? Oh, well, I don't want to offend him. No, if we really love him, what are we going to do? We're going to do our best to maintain that, that circle, that unity that we've got. Why does church discipline, why, what basis does church discipline, on what basis does it work? When you have that love and that fellowship that is so tight and so great that even the one who would sin does not want it to be broken. He wants to maintain it. That's sort of what he's telling us here. In order to protect ourselves against the falsehood, we've got to love one another. And we've got to continue to love God and walk in His commandments, the ones that we know, the ones that had been delivered, the ones that they knew to be true. And so he says, four. Well, the next word, words, many deceivers. For many deceivers. When we use the word deceiver there, it's a word which means wandering, roving, vagabond, tramp, imposter. I remember when I was just a small child, I don't remember how it got started, but I remember my parents, or my mother in particular, talking about some tramp that had come around. Well, I didn't see him. I didn't, I didn't know it was some, I knew it was some man. He, she was talking about some tramp. Well, what did she mean? What I pictured in my mind at that point was a clown. And I don't know why I thought of a clown, and, and connected the two. But then I came to understand, well, it was somebody who, who ran around, who, who just went from place to place and perhaps even begged or deceived or whatever. Maybe even had ridden on a train and jumped off the train and, you know, went from place to place. I'm going to tell you something. There, there are a lot, of, a lot of tramps that are still out there today. There really and truly are. And that's what he says here. That's the word that's used here. The word is an imposter, a tramp, an imposter. Somebody who's bringing you something wrong. Therefore, they translated it with the word deceiver. You know, he may, he may make you think he needs some food and needs some money to go on down the, down the road, and he's got a pocket full because of the first house before getting to you, he stopped and got something there, and the one before that, and the one before that. And these people, they were bringing some news, but it was not the right news. Their purpose was to move from place to place, and to seduce and to mislead those who were Christians. And so as we look at them then, these are the same people that Paul warned about. 
in the book of First Timothy chapter 4, verse number 1. What did Paul say there in that passage? Now the Spirit speaketh expressly... Uh, let me read from the English name. Now the Spirit... I was about to quote the, the, the King James. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceiving spirits and teachings of demons. Now, is Paul saying, well, there's going to be literal demons that are coming, you know, or spirits that are coming? No, he's not talking about literally demons and and spirits standing up and preaching and teaching you. But he just equated those who are the false teachers with those terrible. But he used the word, notice, in regard to the spirits, deceitful. That's the same word that we have here in First John chapter, or verse number seven, or Second John verse number seven. They are deceitful. And, and notice what else he says here. How many of them were there? Many of these folks will be coming. Oh, by the way, going back to First Timothy chapter four, verse one, when he speaks about in the latter times, well, they were in the latter times because they were already dealing with it, if you continue reading there in that passage. And so it's not some time in the future. It's, it was already here. And Paul, I mean, rather John, writes about them in the book of Second John and how they would come to Syria, to this lady, to the other Christians who were there. Okay? Look at 1 John, go back there real quick, verses, uh, beginning in chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Still talking about these many deceivers who had gone out. Where did they go out from? Where did they come from? He answers that for us in his first Epistle. Look at somebody read it for us. First John two verses eighteen and nineteen. Little children, it is the last hour. If you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have contained with us, continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. Okay. Where'd they come from? <coughs> Notice some similarities here. How many of the Antichrist were there that he mentions? Notice the similarity in the language. Many Antichrist in First John. He talks about many deceivers here. Uh, and there are others that are there. But for the sake of time tonight, where'd they come from? From among the believers. They went out from us, but they were not of us. We didn't send them out to teach the junk they're teaching. They went out from us. You ever known a Christian who perhaps had been faithful for many years, maybe even a preacher, Bible teacher, who went astray 
and led many with them? Yep. Some of them were former disciples, and yet they had apostatized. What do we mean by apostatized? They hadn't become apostles. That's not what apostatized means. If they went into apostasy, they apostatized, they went astray. That's what it means to go astray. They were of us, but they had apostatized. They had gone astray. They had left. Okay? And so, back to uh, 2 John, verse number 7, many deceivers have gone out into the world. Where did they come from? Well, they came, many of them, from among the, the apostles. Where did the Gnostics that we talked about when we were studying 1 John, where'd they come from? From among their own numbers. And so they've gone out into the world. See the, the picture, the deceivers. Uh, remember what that word means, the deceivers? The wanderer. They're wandering around in the world now, going from place to place in the world, not necessarily talking about in world to worldly people, even though I'm sure they taught some, but they're going evidently to other brothers and sisters in Christ. If that was not the case, then Paul, or rather John would not need to warn Syria and her family and others that were associated with them. Okay, and what he, what he has to say, especially in verse number 9. They've gone out into the world, but what are they teaching? And he says it in sort of a negative way, I guess you would say here, who do not do what? Confess what? Did he say they don't confess Christ? Is that what he said? He didn't say that they didn't confess Christ, and so they're not out here teaching something about, uh, well, you know, he was an imposter. What are they teaching? That he did not come in the flesh. Now, if you had been alive in Jesus' day, there were Jews who didn't believe that he was the Messiah, except they believed in this man that was there. They believed that he was in the flesh. They just didn't believe he was the Messiah. And there are people still today who do not believe that he's the Messiah. That's not what these folks were teaching. They were teaching a false doctrine that Jesus came, and they evidently believed in Jesus, but he, he didn't come in the flesh. Now, do you remember when we were talking about 1 John, the teaching of the Gnostics? As, as we thought about them, we talked about them. Uh, some of these folks who were Gnostics didn't believe that Jesus had come in the flesh. Not only did they not believe that he had come in the flesh, they didn't believe that he could come in the flesh. They didn't believe it was possible. Why? Because they made a distinction between the flesh and the spirit. And they did that for a number of reasons that we talked about before. But if you make a dis distinction in the flesh and the spirit, remember how we talked about, well, if I sin in the flesh, that really doesn't do anything to my spirit. And so I can sin as much as I want to in the flesh, but my spirit's still safe. They said flesh is evil, spirit is good. Jesus was good, so therefore he could not come in a fleshly body. Now, does that make any difference? To teach that doctrine, does it make any difference? If you do this, 
You know what my next question is going to be? Why does it make a difference? What is the gospel built on? Death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Hmm. If Jesus didn't come in the flesh, could you kill him? Could he be resurrected? Just jump because we, the, the bell rung. Could he be resurrected? No, if nothing happened to him. You see, they had not thought about the implications of their teaching. And there are others. I just pointed that one out. And so their teaching, hey, they're, they're, uh, uh, he, he hasn't come in the flesh. Let me just say real quickly, what, is it, what does he call them? He says, such a one is a deceiver and, and the Antichrist. Anti-against Christ. They're simply against him. They may not be teaching that he, that, he, that, he, that he didn't save people, but they were teaching against him because they were teaching things wrong about him. Okay? All right, we've got to quit. The ladies are out here and the teenagers will be coming up, so we'll pick up there.